Psalm 119 is where we'll be today. Uh, near the end of Martin Luther's life, his works were being collected, his written works were being collected, and um, he writes this real funny introduction to his uh, collected works. He says, I don't know why you're bothering to collect my works. <laughs> They're really not worth reading. Uh, but he says that people are going to do it anyway, so it might as well be sort of an authorized collection. Uh, publishing back in the 1500s was much different than it, than it is today. Uh, not a whole lot of copyright restrictions. And so as his works are being collected, he writes this introduction. He says, um, if, you want to, if you want to be a true theologian, follow the pattern that's set out in Psalm 119. He said there's basically three things in Psalm 119 that we learn about what makes a true theologian. He says it's prayer, meditation, and affliction. That's what makes a true theologian. And he means theologian not in the sense of you know, some uh, kind of professional lecturer who you know, has a, an interest in, in books. He means someone who knows God and who knows him through his word. He says, follow this pattern, prayer, meditation, and affliction. And he said this, these are his exact quotes about how he himself became this sort of theologian. He says, I'm, I myself am deeply indebted to my opponents that through the devil's raging they have beaten, oppressed, and distressed me so much. That is to say, they have made a fairly good theologian out of me, which I would not have become otherwise. And he says this, despite the fact that he says, my writings are essentially like mouse droppings mixed with pepper. <laughs> so nonetheless, it was the affliction, though. In fact, the mistreatment by others. And his life was on the line very frequently throughout, uh, throughout his, own, uh, his, his own life. But he says it's, it's through these things that he learned to walk with God day by day. It's as he prayed. And specifically, he says, pray Psalm 119. And as he meditates, that is saying these things out loud. And as he experienced the affliction of mistreatment. So as we, um, as we read Psalm 119, watch for this theme of affliction. That's really what uh, structures our passage today. The affliction of the life of a follower of God. Psalm 119, starting in verse 57. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures with you, you can read along on the screen behind me here. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, 
but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. This is God's holy word. Well, the psalmist has endured some affliction. And we're not told exactly what it is, but we have at least the basic outline here. He says three times in these uh, two st- in uh, two, the two later stanzas that we read here that he has endured some affliction. And he tells us at least this much in verses 69 and 78. He says he's been falsely accused in public, falsely accused in public. Some sort of smear campaign has happened. And he says in verse 69, they they smear me with lies. So whatever it is that's happened, it's publicly known. And this crisis has become sort of visible in the community so that his reputation is on the line. But his response is so telling. He says, it's good for me that I was afflicted. And he says specifically, it's shaped me to be who I am today. And in fact, I, I know that it was no accident I know this was God's intention for me. This was his purpose in my life. It's not an accident. It was his goal to make me who I am. And so that's sort of the background of the psalm today as we jump into it. And I want to focus today on five reasons that the psalmist gives that it was good that he was afflicted. Five reasons it's good that he was afflicted. The first one is he learned to treasure God. He learned to treasure God. He says in this uh, second stanza here, 65 through 72, he, he uses this word good six times in there. And it's the opening word in five of the eight lines, which is a little unusual. Uh, we've talked already before how this psalm is an acrostic. Uh, each set of eight lines begins with the same letter, but it doesn't usually begin with the same word. That's a little unique, and it seems like he's chosen this word good for a reason. He wants to draw attention to the fact that God himself is good. There are plenty of other words that start with this letter that the psalmist could have chosen, but he chooses good because he wants to to draw attention to God's goodness. He wants to emphasize his view of who God is. Something like this, maybe. If before God had been a part of his life, Now he's learned that God is central to his life, central to his own satisfaction and contentedness. 
He's learning to treasure him because of this. And at ver- verse 68, which is really right in the center of this stanza, makes this abundantly clear. He says to the Lord, you are good and you do good. This is all-encompassing. <laughs> Not only is your character good and right, Lord, but as I look at my own life, I see that the things you do are good. This is treasuring God. Uh, and I choose that word because I, I think that it's more than just a verbal affirmation. What's going on here is the psalmist is being, he's being reshaped in his personal desires. So he'll say, for instance, at the end of this stanza in verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Here's someone who has been freed from the greed that is a temptation to all of us. Here's someone whose life has been reshaped so that he treasures God. And specifically, he finds God to be satisfying to him. But I think what's so surprising about this is that in this same stanza where we have this repetition of the word good over and over and over, it's in this stanza that we find this word affliction used twice. This is uh, the highest concentration that we have through the whole psalm. It's as if, he, he, so don't, don't miss what he's saying here. He's not saying you're good despite my suffering. He's saying you're good because of my suffering. That's, that's so different than what we're used to hearing. Uh, we'd be totally on track with him if he said, you're good because of my prosperity, right? It's good that you blessed me with, fill in the blank, uh, an education, being born in the the, the most prosperous nation on earth, so that I could learn your word. That's not what he says at all. It's good for me that I was afflicted. And in this affliction, I've learned your goodness. Perhaps the best summary of his view of God after suffering is in verse 57. That's the first verse in that, that first stanza that we read. He just simply says, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. This word portion is the same word that's used in the Old Testament for uh, the land that was given to the tribes. If you know uh, the story of Israel, they, they come out of slavery and God gives them land. And to each individual tribe, he gives a specific portion of land, except to the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi is not given a specific uh, portion of land. They're given scattered cities, but they're told the Lord is your portion. The Lord is your portion. And it's as if he's saying your possessions are so much greater even than what can be captured in this earth, even than what what you can uh, possess tangibly. The Lord is my portion, he says. This is the new view of God that he's learned. We have an example of this in... Uh, the famous hymn writer, Fanny Crosby. If you know the life story of Fanny Crosby, she's famously blind uh, as a little girl, six weeks old, um, early 1800s. She has some sort of uh, eye disease, some sort of inflammation, and the doctor puts these hot poultices on her eyes, and it destroys the optic nerves. She's blind ever after. But at the age of nine... She could write this. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I resolved that in this world contented I shall be. So many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. 
to weep inside because I'm blind? I cannot, nor I won't. Isn't that amazing? And she went on to write more than 8,000 hymns. You'll know some of them. Blessed assurance, glory be to God. She was the sort of person who looked at her affliction and said, it's good for me that I was afflicted because I learned to treasure God. She, she said, if, if I was offered the opportunity to see, to have my vision back in this life, I wouldn't. And she said one of the consolations she had was that the first face she would ever see that would gladden her vision would be the face of Jesus in heaven. This comes not apart from some suffering, not despite suffering, but learning to treasure God often comes through affliction. That's the first thing the psalmist says here about why it's good that he was afflicted. It's good that I was afflicted because he learns to treasure God, he says. Secondly, he says, because he learned obedience. He learned obedience. We see this in verse 67. He just states this very directly. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. The contrast between these two is striking. Uh, sometimes we joke. Uh, I, I don't pray for spiritual growth because I don't want to have to walk whatever path of suffering comes my way. How different is the psalmist's attitude? It's good for me that I was afflicted. He looks back over a series of painful trials. He's surveying the landscape of his life. And what he sees, he says, is that these painful afflictions that he's experienced, this public insult, his name being dragged through the mud, whatever else came with it, it taught him obedience. It turned him away from this straying path that he was on. He doesn't regret the sorrows. Uh, neither is he the kind of person who triumphs how much he's, excuse me, trumpets how much he's suffered. He's not self-righteous. He doesn't go around talking about that. He simply says, it's good for me that I was afflicted because before I went astray, but now I follow you, God. I keep my feet to your paths. And this is the story of many Christians. Some of you in this room, I know, have this life story for yourself. This is how God brought you to yourself. I have a friend uh, in Albuquerque. Uh, he struggled with alcohol as a young man all the way up into his married years. And he, his wife was preparing to leave him with their children. And it was, it was that moment, that affliction, that, that really wakened him up, opened his eyes. It was affliction that he brought on himself, no doubt. But it was that, the terror of losing his wife. It was God saying, you are going to lose everything that you have. A very real threat that turned him back and that God used to open his eyes so that he could say, it's good for me that I was afflicted because before this, I went astray. Now, 30 years later, he's uh, a godly man. He's got a, uh, a family. His children walk with the Lord. His wife loves him. And he has learned to walk in obedience from this painful affliction. Affliction may be the tool that God uses to turn you away from destruction and back to his path. I love what Psalm 32, 8 says, kind of a negative example of this. Psalm 32, 8 and following, the psalmist says, he says, uh, this is the Lord speaking, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. 
Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. God urges us not to be resistant to his leading. Don't be like a foolish, dumb animal that has to be forced into obedience. Come willingly. And the psalmist says, I learned this new way of obedience through the afflictions that the Lord gave me. It is often God's mercy to turn us away from wandering, away from straying in sin. And he will, if necessary, use affliction to turn us to himself. That too is a mercy if it turns us back to God's way. And that attitude of being easily led by God that we see here in Psalm 32 is the new attitude that this psalmist learns. He says in verses 59 and 60 that now he's quick to obey. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I'm back in Psalm 119 now. Uh, Verse 60, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Following God's word is his delight. It's not burdensome. It's become a joy to him so that when he sees in Scripture, this is what God wants of me, he's, he's quick to do it. Now, uh, don't get the wrong idea, brothers and sisters. This is not, uh, this is not a, a, a promise of salvation in return for obedience. Obedience is the outcome of a, a life of turning to God. We turn to God as we sang earlier today in that song. Uh, We come to him with empty hands. Nothing in my hands I bring except the promise of acceptance. I I receive the promise of acceptance with empty hands. Again, to quote Luther, he said his dying words are, we are all just beggars. (laughs) We bring nothing to God. We come with empty hands. And that's exactly the promise of scripture. We come to God and he accepts us, but... As we read his word and as we experience afflictions, he teaches us to follow him. He teaches us to obey. And that obedience that we learn in scripture becomes our joy. It's a new way of life. There's no no distinction here between the Old Testament path of life and the New Testament path of life. Paul himself says in Romans 6, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. All that we do should be structured now by obedience. Oftentimes it's affliction that leads us to do that joyfully. And the way that the psalmist learned this was through his sufferings. None of them were were wasted, he says. God used them to train me. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. Affliction is not always a result of disobedience. Affliction is not always a result of disobedience. There are many afflictions that we suffer in our lives that are, in fact, the result of righteousness. We have a whole book about that, the book of Job. The most righteous man around suffers because of his righteousness, we're told. Usually we have no idea why a certain affliction enters into our lives. However, God is able to use those afflictions, whether they're the result of our own sin whether it's the result of some external force totally outside of our control, he uses those things often to teach us obedience and to teach us 
joyful obedience. So that's the second thing we see here. It's good for him that he was afflicted so that he didn't stray anymore, so that he learned to obey. The third thing, he learned to value God's word. He learned to value God's word. In verse 71, we have the words that are the theme of today's sermon. It's good for me that I was afflicted, he says. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. We've talked already, so I won't belabor it, but statutes is just another, it's another synonym for God's written word. Commandments, your teachings, your instruction. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. This is rather straightforward. The psalmist is looking back on his own experience, and he is able to give thanks for his afflictions because they drove him back to God's word. I hope that what you find here is a model of spirituality that you can grab onto. You know, sometimes we read uh, in the New Testament, uh, or we, we read through our Bibles, and maybe you see these sort of high points, followers of God who experience miraculous deliverances, and you think, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> of course, you know, Paul uh, turned towards Christ. He, he literally met the resurrected Jesus in a flood of light that blinded him on the road to Damascus. What about me? In my day-to-day life, I go through all sorts of trials, and God doesn't show up visibly or audibly. But I think the psalmist's experience here is a model of true spirituality for us. He doesn't say he saw some ecstatic vision or had some miraculous deliverance. Rather, in the midst of this trial, he went looking for God, and God showed up, to use our language, in his written scriptures. Look at verse 72. He says, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. It's not like these are just some dry, dusty, ancient writings. He says, The law of your mouth. As I read your scriptures, it's like I'm sitting with you, Lord. It's like you're speaking to me directly. It's here that I hear your voice. And the reason he learned to have this value on God's word is because of his afflictions. His afflictions drove him to value God's word. And if he could say this about the Old Testament, writings that just have the dimmest shadows of the promised one, kind of vague outlines of what the Son of God would look like when he arrived, how much more should we be able to say this as we read about the life, the death, the resurrection, the teachings of Jesus, his interactions with his disciples. We have in the New Testament the fulfillment of everything that was hoped for in the Old Testament. We should be able to say, it's here in your written word that I hear your voice, Lord, that you speak to me. He learned this through affliction. I, uh, the great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said the, ris- the reason many people reject Christianity is not because they test the Bible, they try it, and they find that it's wanting, that is, it's unreliable in some way. It's rather they test it and they find that it's difficult. <laughs> they find that what it's calling them to is a life of suffering, a life committed to certain risks that you wouldn't open yourself to otherwise, sacrifices that you willingly walk into because you know the Lord. These afflictions 
are not a bug, they're a feature of the Christian life. Jesus taught that the pathway to life is narrow, it's difficult, it's demanding, it's costly. There's suffering to be had if you want to follow Jesus. I love what Paul says in Acts 14. He's going back through some of the churches that he's planted. And it says he wanted to strengthen the disciples and encourage them. And so he says to them, uh, through many trials, you must enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> You're going to the kingdom of heaven. You're on the right path. And it's through the trials that you'll arrive there. That's how he strengthened and encouraged them. It says... This is not just stoicism, some philosophy that says, be indifferent to the sufferings of life. Act like it doesn't matter. Act like it doesn't hurt you. Not at all. The psalmist acknowledges these are afflictions. These hurt. <laughs> I didn't like being insulted in public. I didn't like that I didn't have the opportunity to defend myself at every turn, that my reputation was on the line. But the afflictions of the Christian life are sweetened by the words of God that we find in Scripture. We hear His voice speaking to us right here. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Let's pray this for ourselves. God, may we see and hear the words of your mouth. Teach us to value your word, O Lord, whatever the cost. Don't let our sufferings be wasted. Whatever you do, O oh Lord, give us the grace to improve them so that we might find you in your word in the midst of our afflictions. Don't allow us to feel defeated, but may we know true prosperity because we have your voice speaking to us no matter what comes. May we say, it's good for me that I was afflicted because I learned your statutes. That's the third thing we see here. Fourth reason it's good that he was afflicted. He became a public encouragement to those who fear God. He became a public encouragement. Uh, the second verse from the beginning and the second verse from the end of the third stanza kind of bookend that, that stanza there. And both of them speak about uh, those who fear God. The psalmist says, those who fear you will find encouragement as they look to me, to my life, he says. Because, uh, in the words of verse 74, I've hoped in your word. The psalmist endured this affliction. He talks about it again in verse 78. He says, uh, the insolent, let them be put to shame because they've wronged me with falsehood. This public trial that he went through uh, apparently had some sort of high visibility in the community. Everybody would have known about it. If he's an important person, maybe David or something like that, it would have been visible to the whole nation, of course. Falsely accused. But in the midst of the crisis, he appears to have continued as he had before. That is, his practice of turning to God's word continued. He maintained it in the midst of this trial. That's what he says in verse 74. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. Some of your translations have the word, uh, translate that second part, because I, I wait for your word. This is a good translation. Uh, if you speak Spanish, esperar, it's very similar to this Hebrew verb. It means both to wait and to hope. Those ideas are mixed here. I'm, I'm waiting in your word, Lord. I'm hoping in it. I continue in your word because I know that you're good. This is, this is my hope, and I, it's, it's on display. So when this crisis 
becomes public and blows up the psalmist. These accusations against the psalmist go public. It looks bad. It catches the public eye. It brings attention to him that he doesn't want. Everybody's talking about it. But he knows he's not in the wrong. No doubt he says, I didn't do what I'm being accused of. And yet he appears to be able to just leave it there. He responds to the accusation. And then he's able to calmly, peacefully move on. He says, because he finds this sense of hope in God's word. He continues in the habit he's always had, even in the midst of this vicious smear campaign. And so, this is the point, he becomes a public encouragement to those who fear God. They see his life. They see what's going on, and they're waiting for it too. They're waiting to see what's going to happen with this guy. We think he's a godly person. We don't think he's done what he's accused of. How does he respond in the midst of it? He says, I I become this kind of high visibility example of trust in you when I'm falsely accused because I continue to hope in your word. He speaks his peace and then he leaves the matter alone like a, a tree in the midst of a storm that stands firm. He's not blown over because his roots are firmly fixed in God's word, he says. I hope you know someone like this. A small group leader, maybe. A Christian man or woman who you look up to, who you've seen endure various trials in their life. Maybe something like this, publicly accused. And in the midst of it, instead of flailing around and doing uh, some sort of counterattack, publicly accusing back, they simply declare their innocence and then turn back to God's word. And they have that sort of calm demeanor that peaceful response that speaks volumes more than any words could. Non-anxious leaders, they're often called. I love that phrase, and I think that's who this psalmist is here. Non-anxious leaders point people to God's word in the midst of trouble because they themselves have tested it and found that it's solid ground. Here they have hope. Here they have God's promises spoken to to them. That's the fourth reason he gives, that it's good he was afflicted. And finally, fifth and finally, it's good that he was afflicted, he says, because he learned to trust God's faithfulness. Verse 75 makes, again, this explicit connection between knowing that God's rules are righteous and having confidence in God's guidance of our lives, the experiences that we have. I'll read it, verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Here's the idea. When we see God's character on display in Scripture, we are invited to examine his ways. We can test them and see, who is this person? What's he like? What does he do? We see how he guides history on a grand scale, how he brought Israel safely out of Egypt and into the promised land, how he accomplished redemption for us through Jesus. But we also see a care for individuals. I love the story of Hannah, a a relative nobody, if you will. She's married to uh, kind of a backwoods guy, uh, Elkanah. We read this at the beginning of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 1 and 2. She's troubled because she can't have children. 
This is a, a, a major dishonor in their culture. She's seen as unproductive, unimportant, therefore. And in the midst of this, she cries out to the Lord. She just kind of opens her heart to him and says, I'm being mocked. She's also mocked by uh, someone in her life. And in the midst of this mocking, she just cries out to the Lord and says, God, please help me. Please answer my cry. And he does. This insignificant, in the eyes of the world, woman receives a personal response from God. And she becomes the mother of one of the most important prophets in the Old Testament. The prophet who would become the kingmaker. He's the one who anoints David. And so what we see when we look at God's word is we see not just his wisdom on a grand scale, but his compassion in the lives of individuals. And so when the psalmist says here, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. He's able to say, as I look at your written testimony, as I look at your law, as I look at your word, the history of how you've dealt with both the nation and the individuals, I see that you're righteous. And therefore, when I look at my own afflictions, I know that you're doing something good here. I know that in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Even when I suffer, I trust, God, that you're doing something right and good here. Probably it's not clear to him what that is. That doesn't seem to be the point that he's making. He's not saying, I can connect all the dots, and now I can explain why I suffered the things that I did. He just says, I know your character. I see it in your written word. And therefore, I'm able, when I look at my own life, to trust you, Lord, to trust that you're doing something good here, to find peace that surpasses understanding, to use that New Testament phrase, not because I have an answer to every question that I ask you. Why? Why this suffering? The reason he's able to find peace that passes understanding is because he knows who God is. He's seen him revealed in his word. We have the evidence for who God is in the Bible. So if you are seeking to make sense of the suffering in your past, don't seek just for answers to connect the dots. Those sort of answers often are platitudinous. <laughs> you know this if you've, if you've gone through any amount of suffering and sometimes people, even well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ, offer that sort of simple answer. Well, no doubt God was doing these things in your life and now you can see that. Perhaps, maybe. But scripture does give us examples of God's wisdom and of his love. And that's where we should find this sort of hope, where we can say, it's good for me that I was afflicted because I, I know that you're doing good things in my life. I know that you're faithful, Lord, and that in righteousness you afflicted me. And there's no, of course, no greater example <coughs> excuse me, of God's love than what we find in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus. God himself, the son of God, humbled himself. He stepped down and became a man, joined us in our sufferings. And then he humbled himself again and stood in our place to take our punishment. This is not insignificant for us. The gospel promises are where we should find our hope so that we can say this sort of thing. I know, I know that your purposes are good in the midst of my sufferings, Lord, because I see what you did through your son. I see that you, in compassion, came down and forgave me for my sins. You kept your promises to redeem a people for yourself. 
it's sometimes overwhelming. It should be in the midst of corporate worship like this, as we're singing these songs together and as we're hearing God's word preached, I hope that your conscience is pricked about particular sins that you've committed. That's no accident. That's part of the Holy Spirit's work. He intends to convict us of sins, to remind us of them. Because that's who we are on this side of the fall. We are sinners. Even if you're redeemed, even if you are a follower of Christ, and those things are forgiven once and for all, nonetheless, the reminder of them should point you back to the cross so that once again you go to, you go to Christ and you say, God, thank you for your, for your love to me. Thank you for how you've shown that by sending your own son. So we praise you, God. We praise you that you did what we couldn't do, that you proved your love to us through Jesus. And as we see that, as we see his humiliation, his self-sacrifice, that just like we, we read uh, this morning in John 15, greater love, uh, it, it, there's no, no example of greater love possible than that a person would lay down their life for others. This is what Jesus did for us. He sacrificed himself on our behalf, not because, uh, not because I'm so good, <laughs> not because you're so good, but out of his own love. When we see the love of God, the character of God, who he is, then we can look at our lives and say, even though I can't explain everything else, I know that these afflictions have, they, they fit the big picture, Lord, and you see it, and you're doing something good here, so I can trust you. And he doesn't leave it there. He's, he goes on in verses 76 through 78 to ask for that affliction to be removed as well. Verse 76, let your steadfast love comfort me. He asked for comfort. 77, let your mercy come to me that I may live. Basically, take away this affliction, whatever it is, Lord. And in 78, he asked for justice. Let the insolent be put to shame. So we can see the affliction in our lives, acknowledge that it is painful, trust that God's doing good through it, and still ask, would you take it away, Lord? Would you remove it from me? And we know in the midst of this that we have the fellowship of the suffering one, the fellowship of the resurrected one. Christ himself suffered not just for us, but with us. He came down to experience all that we experience. I love how Hebrews just draws this out over and over again. He's able to sympathize with you, brother, sister, because he's experienced what you have. He knows your suffering and he sympathizes. It's in that place that we really learn to trust the Lord and to trust all of his decisions in our life, his guidance of every experience in my life and in yours, including affliction, makes sense when we see his character specifically in the written word. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray, teach us these things as well. I pray that we would not waste our sufferings, but that we would, in the midst of affliction, turn to your word, that we would hear you speaking to us in the written word, that we would know the value that your word has to us as it reveals you to us, that we would treasure you, Father, and that you would help us to make sense of the sufferings in our lives, not by answering every question, but by showing us who you are. 
your character, the one who suffers with us and loves us perfectly. We pray to you in the name of Jesus who suffered with us and for us. Amen.